Hi everyone, I'm Josh. And I'm Jim. And this is the Dapper Meeple. This show is about our love of gaming, the games we play, and the gaming community around this passion. So pull up a chair, put on your Dapper Meeple hat, and join us at the table. Hey kids, remember, this is an adult podcast and may contain adult language. Also, Dapper Meeple hat not required. Today we're talking about characters that we've played, how we identify with our characters, and making sure that everyone else gets that opportunity. We'll also talk about giving back with some ideas of running a charity event and mention a few charities already popular in the gaming community that you can be a part of. And we've got another Know Your Character segment where we'll give you some new ideas for NPCs. All that and more on this episode of The Dapper Meeple. In our next segment, we're going to discuss inclusivity in gaming. Now, we do not have all the answers. We're aware that we don't have all the answers, but this was a discussion my brother and I wanted to share uh, with our audience. So if you feel that we've missed something or there's some nuance that we might have overlooked, I encourage you to get a hold of us and get your voice into this discussion as well. Uh, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at The Dapper Meeple. On Twitter, the handle is at The Dapper Meeple. Or email us at dappermeeplegaming at gmail.com. Thank you, and enjoy the show. What is the most unique character that you've ever played in an RPG? Ooh, that's a, that's a good question. For me, uh, it would have to be a intelligent barbarian. Um, so I played a character in a couple of one-off games. Uh, his name was Gerald. Uh, he was a gnome barbarian um, with a very high intelligence and a very low strength, as gnomes are tend to be. Um, but his signature thing was that he could only rage if he felt that someone was picking on other people. So when we were in, in game and coming up into a battle, you know, things like that, um, he had to have a justification that he felt like the per person he was about to attack was being a bully. And if the person was not a bully, then he would not be able to rage. Mm. So it, it, it all encompassing, it was a complete character that just had a, uh, a case of nerd rage all the time. Right. But it was only triggered when another like player or character or NPC or whatever was being a bully to someone else. So the entire time we played the rest of the party would always make justifications, how these enemies we were about to fight, how they were being bullies in some way. <laughs> That's just, that sounds like the, uh, the old, you know, well, you know, Hey, we got a paladin in the party when they used to have to be lawful goods. Like, Oh, cool. I didn't want to have fun anyway. So the party would always have to come up with a reason for the paladin to go away when they were going to do some sketchy stuff. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That was the the whole thing. He would ask him, you know, well, is is this guy being a bully? And well, you know, and then they would make up some ridiculous story that probably wasn't true about the poor person <laughs> about why they were being a bully, just so that they would make sure that Gerald raged. Got it. Got it. It feels like that's important as a barbarian. Um, I think one of my favorites that I've played was a, a tiefling paladin, but I use the UA material for the Oath of Treachery. 
And if you read the Oath of Treachery, it's kind of like, oh, you're all out for yourself and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you, you know, you probably aren't the paladin that's going to hang around and, you know, fight stuff out and stuff like that. And I took it and I was like, ah, I don't really like the way that that reads. He was a paladin of mask and it wasn't that he was out for himself as much as it was, you know, I'm number one, but if I'm part of a crew, you know, you're, you know, like the, like the old firefly, you know, Malcolm Reynolds is like, you're on my ship. You're part of my crew. Right. You know, that was it. Uh, so it was a great character to play, but it was a character that uh, originally his mother was an information broker in uh, Callum Shen, and she sent him out into the world to learn, and that's what he was doing and found his way to Waterdeep. So the character always had something going on, and he would lie, even when he didn't need to, just to add another level of secrecy onto stuff, um, which was fantastic for me. I don't think my DM so much because... I had two pages of names that I kept. <laughs> and every time we would meet somebody new, I'd end up introducing myself as a different name. Right. And like, I tried to get the accents and, you know, it was, it, I was a, it was, he was a different person every time. Um, one of my favorites is we're running and we were chasing somebody that we were after, you know, as you do in D and D and I cut through a house and she's like, yeah, there's a family there. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to go straight over the table. And as I'm running by, like, I gave him a name. It was uh, Magna Reynolds, private investigator, chasing the, you know, chasing the suspect. And we just ran through the house. And everybody's <laughs> like, whoa, what? So it was fun. And it was just kind of his thing. And the rest of the party, as they got, you know, as I kind of integrated into the party, got to know him. And it became a thing in the party, like everybody <laughs> else started giving false names and stuff when we were introduced to new people. And it was great. He was a character I had to put a lot of forethought into, and just the play style, I had to have something ready, uh, you know, for when a new situation came up. But I think he was one of my more unique characters. Um, he went by nowhere. Everybody always being, you know, every, everybody in the party still was questioning, like, is he really on our side? But at the end of the day, you know, my crew, my people. So it was cool. Um, the fun in RPGs is coming up with unique characters for a lot of people and building something uh, that I think that they see themselves in. If you had to pick a character that was most unlike you that you've played. Um, that's a tough one. Cause I, I think we always, or at least personally, I always, when I make a character, there's always part of them that draws like something from my own experiences or uh, sometimes it, Obviously, those characters are never going to be exactly like us because we don't live in a fantasy setting. But a lot of times attitudes, actions, you know, even goals or, you know, things like that can be related to something that we ourselves, you know, think about and believe in or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, for me, I mean, Lustry's a woman. Yeah. I, well, I mean, outside the surface, you know, but um, I... I don't know. That's a tough one because I feel like all of the characters that I've played, which is not, you know, crazy extensive, but a lot of them have always had something that drew back to like me in some way. Something you could identify with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I get that. I, I'm kind of the same boat and I will tell you, I know people who have been role playing games, playing role playing games much longer than I have. And they have characters that, you know, they've played that have a different, sex or sexual orientation or gender identity 
um, just something that they've done differently that they want to portray through a character. Um, I'm usually most of my character. I, I think every character I've played has been predominantly straight male characters. Um, and that's just me. Two reasons. One, um, it's what I, it's easy for me, um, to do that. And number two, I would hate to try to change something in a character and screw up the representation. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, one of the streams, uh, was it Dimension 20? Brennan Lee Mulligan's uh, stream. One thing that I love is how diverse their cast is. And he even, in an interview I was reading with him, he was talking about it, and he's like, there's a lot of diversity that comes in our cast that I can't do. Like, he goes, I'm just a, like, I'm a straight geeky white dude. And I don't have all the answers, but by bringing other people out of the cast in, um, he says he gets a lot of diversity into the into the discussion and into the game. And I think that's fantastic to one identify that you don't want to screw it up, and two to have that opening out there. Yeah, absolutely. I I agree in a lot of ways with that. Is that it's tough to for one person to bring all those kind of viewpoints to the table yeah i mean i would even say probably impossible and then given a very special person but even then um i think that's kind of illustrates the importance of having diversity in a gaming group yeah. and in a community right uh, having people bring these life experiences to the table which color the way that they see things right um you and i have talked about this quite often of how you know there are a lot of issues that we're hesitant to talk about because of our perspective on them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's not that it's something that I don't want to address. It's something that I don't want to address improperly. Exactly. Um, like we this week we read the article kind of revisiting the combat wheelchair. Uh, there was an article out that we were reading that talked about, uh, for those of you that don't know, last year, there was a supplement put out for D&D. It's a free supplement. I'm pretty sure you can get it on the Dungeon Masters Guild or Drive Through RPG now. And it was the rules for using the combat wheelchair, which is just like it sounds um, for a character that needs help mobility with mobility. They have a wheelchair designed to adventure. And it was designed by uh, Sarah Thompson. You can find her on Twitter at MustangsArt. She's from the UK, and she writes RPG material. She's big into The Witcher, uh, that game. So I know she's done a lot of work for them. So she wrote this for 5th edition and published it for free. And it was pretty well accepted, I think, for the most part. I think she got a lot of positive feedback from, you know, Brendan Mulligan, Matt Mercer. A lot of the big streams picked it up, and they were like, hey, this is a new thing. We'll play with new things. Yeah, I, I remember when it came out and it was kind of, it was a pretty positive acceptance, but there were some very vocal um, voices against it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think this also ties in as well with the new um, kind of race rules out of uh, Tasha's. Yes. And for me a lot of this kind of discussion um falls into wanting to broaden the type of character that you can play in a game sure um because like i mentioned a lot of my characters they have something that 
harkens back to me. There's something that connects us. Some people like to play RPGs, though, where their characters are completely different than them. Right. And that's kind of the beauty of these games is that you can really play whatever you want. Um, in regards to the combat wheelchair, a lot of people were uh, making comments of how there's no way that you could adventure in a wheelchair. You know, your biggest boss was going to be the first set of stairs you come to and things like that. But in reality, when we're playing in a setting where we accept that there are people who can conjure, you know, creatures, fire, ice, whatever, from right. their very fingertips, you know, why, why is a wheelchair the one thing that holds us back? And that's another thing. Representation matters in our gaming and in our media that we consume. For somebody that never sees an adventurer that is like them, you know, like I said, we're two geeky straight white guys, like all of the adventurers that were written in the eighties were all for us. Right. You know, and before that, like we have that representation, so it's easy for us to see it. And I think we forget that, um, somebody, you know, who may use a wheelchair in the real world wants to see somebody like them doing the things that our adventurers do, you know, and we've talked about how, you know, this whole thing is telling a cooperative story. And I have friends that I've sat around the table with that. We still retell those stories because it was a good time. And it was a shared experience. Like you said, there were people that came up with every practical reason why you can't adventure in a wheelchair, but are completely okay. Accepting that I can spray fire for my eyes or hands or whatever and have no problem with that. And it's like, is that where you're going to draw the line just to keep somebody from playing something that they would enjoy. Exactly. And it's strange to try and draw that line there. Um, because as you look, even through like source material, there are all sorts of crazy contraptions and things like that, that were invented, you know, even official source book stuff, right. That it is completely feasible that there would be a mind that could somehow, you know, infuse magic into that to make it to where there are no obstacles anymore. And as you said, that representation would makes a big difference for somebody because mm -hmm. it's no longer, uh, you know, you are who you are. You can't do this thing, but it becomes a more, we see kind of what you have going on and look, here you go. Like we have this same kind of uh, picture here or character that is able to really, you know, show off kind of those sorts of things. Right. One of the quotes that I know when she was talking in the article, uh, Sarah said that, you know, what she saw was uh, people calling, uh, you know, others out there calling disabled people like her weak. And I think that's something that those of us that don't deal with that. And again, those of us that have played games forever, um, the geek community is pretty monochromatic or has been for a while. So we see, um, we see what we're used to. Whereas now, as this is expanding and more people are coming in, we're getting a more diverse group. They're seeing things as they come into this fold, and they're like, "Hey, this looks like a thing that I deal with on the outside world." Um, Tasha's is in Wizards of the Coast. While there are still issues, and I will be the first to admit it, um, there are still issues with just kind of the way that they're doing things as a business practice. I think. Um, in the real world and how they deal with that. But Tasha's was an attempt to kind of change that. And they removed 
a lot of things. And uh, I know Jeremy Crawford was on talking about it. If you have an entire race of people or sentient humanoids, let's, you know, the races for the most part in D&D are left to their own devices. But you tell me everybody that is this race is evil, not because of any motivations that, you know, well, they worship an evil God that wants them to murder people. All right. Well, that's a choice. You know, if it's just because, well, you're an orc, you're obviously evil. And, you know, adventures come in and hack you to pieces. You know, maybe you're not. And in the real world, we do that. Growing up in the South, we've seen it plenty of times where, oh, all them are like this. You know, and it's not, I I don't think it's so much that we're not saying that, oh, well, orcs are designed to represent African-Americans. And that's why. No, no, no. But you're treating orcs the same way that you treat people of color because they're all the same. And I think that it creates a richer story when you don't completely um, alienate or assign characteristics to a group. Um, it it allows the storytelling to really develop in almost a more natural way. Now, there's always that the kind of black and white, good versus evil type of you know overarching theme that is used oftentimes in fantasy settings. I, I think it's the best stories are the ones that begin to look at those shades of gray in the middle, whether it be with the player characters or with the NPCs that they encounter. When you're able to kind of dig in deeper instead of looking at this, you know, overarching theme, begin to see what that everyday looks like in the NPCs that the party encounters um, and how they are able to react and interpret those situations and overcome even some of those biases that are just inherent in the game. Yeah. Yeah. And this is one that, you know, we, we talk about that Wizards of the Coast is trying to make that change. They're trying to expand that for better or worse on how they're doing it. Um, This was something that was addressed. If you're a fan of the Drist books, um, was it Nojim? There was the goblin that he met in one of the books. And his initial reaction was to kill the goblin because it was a goblin. Um, And I can't remember the entire story, but something, you know, stayed his hand and he found that, you know, this goblin was just trying to live and, you know, survive. And, doesn't hurt anybody doesn't have any it didn't have an evil bone in its body and um, it was addressed where you know he had to reconsider his biases towards you know others um so I, it's something that i think got, has been addressed my like on a minor level but wizards of the coast um is kind of pushing it out to the front now to say hey um here's the thing we want more people playing the game and enjoying the game and identifying with the characters that they're, that they're building. Right. And that is one of, I mean, as as our kind of philosophy is bringing people to the table, you know, something like this really strikes home for us because that's what we seek to do and are seeking to do is drawing in those people who maybe they are not, or they don't identify themselves as gamers now, Maybe because the side that they've seen is not something that really appeals to them. Mm-hmm. But when you open up the stories and the storytelling to be able to accommodate people from all different walks of life and, you know, life experiences, you really are able to open up that table and bring these people in, have them see what it's like, have them get some of that, you know, that itch that we all feel when we're playing and are not able to play yes. and draw more people into this community that at its heart is one, one of the better communities I think you can be a part of. 
And one of the things that you talked about earlier when we were having this discussion was, you know, it, it, it's broadening the community, but if you don't like it, then don't have it in your game. And But I think you are missing out by limiting your games in that way. And that's just a personal opinion. I know that when we talked about the characters that we loved playing and were unique and were something that we enjoyed, what really made that character great was also the story and the group that was around them. To each their own when it comes to certain circumstances about your game. You know, if you're a DM who wants to run a hyper-realistic campaign where, you know, your long rest do not heal your player's wounds and all that, that's the kind of game you want to play. You know, have that talk in session zero with your players up front. Make sure that's the game that they're buying into. But I, I agree with you in that the more diverse you can make your game, the richer the story will be that comes out on the other side. How much of an asshole would you have to be in session zero to tell somebody who's playing that's in a wheelchair that they cannot have a character? I find that that would just blow my mind. Like that's a level of disconnect that I don't think that I ever want to see. I don't ever want to see at any table that I'm playing at. No, I I agree. Like that person probably should not be DMing. No. But for the most part, I think a lot of the, a lot of the negative reaction to these things, to these changes comes as probably an adverse to wanting to change. Sure. Um, But that's kind of the beauty of, especially the 5e system is you can play with as much of this kind of stuff as you want to. You don't have to include, you know, the like racial bonus changes from Tasha's if you don't want to. If you want to still play with the standard racial alignment, you can do that. It just opens up the opportunity for players who want to, to be able to officially. Right. And I think that that makes the biggest difference in the whole thing is that these are these are optional changes. Right? You don't have to use any of them. We're not forcing a new game on anybody, but it allows those players who want to play a specific character, right? They have that character in mind for whatever reason, and that's what they want to play. And now this gives them an avenue to actually be able to play him. So we encourage you to make your games more diverse where you can get outside of your circles. It's something that looking at some of our own games that we have going on, we have a weekly game. Um, we're working on ourselves, open up your circle to more people, make a more diverse game. And we work on growing this hobby for everyone. So I think a hallmark of any good community is the ability to give back. Right. I I think that in one things you had mentioned before, if whatever you're doing, you know, raising money, supporting yourself, whatever, if it is only giving money to you, there's so much more that you can do. With that in mind, we're going to talk a little bit today about gaming charities because it's something that happens pretty often in this community. I can't remember watching an event or going to an event where there wasn't something going on that was a charity related. 
um, either a, like a side quest or something that happened that you could get involved in. Um, I think there's a lot of power in this community as far as being able to mobilize and kind of focus. So we're going to talk a little bit about that, maybe some ideas for how you could run a charity event. And then at the end of this, we'll go over a couple of charities that we know about that have been pretty well accepted in the community. Right. So I guess the first question is, how do you raise money for charities through gaming? The easiest way to do this, the short answer is play games and ask for donations. That's kind of the bread and butter. Like I know growing up as a kid, I mean, how many times did you do that thing where you had to run circles around the damn track and you got donations for every circle you made? Well, we always did the mathon or something like that for St. Jude's. Yeah. Every year we'd have the little math books and you would do all the math problems and people would pay you to do math. And that seemed great. Right. <laughs> so so you had to do the pre-work to that, though, right? You had to go out and, you know, it was always friends and family that you had to go out and, you know, hey – you know, I need donations, how, you know, and they would pledge a certain amount and stuff like that. And then you would go do whatever it is you were going to do and they would get a donation based off of that. So when you're talking about gaming though, that's, uh, that's the easiest way to do it. Um, is be like, Hey, I'm going to be gaming and I would appreciate it if you would donate and here's where the money is going. Right. I mean, we are already playing games. Hopefully, all of us. Um, now that things are starting to kind of lift up, hopefully we'll be starting to play games together again, not just virtually. But even if we are still playing virtually, again, it's the same thing. Get people to pledge to you know pay you X amount of dollars to play this game or to stream for so many hours or you know whatever it is, and then you're able to turn right around and push that money over to the charity. Right. And a lot of the charities have it where you can set up where it'll automatically go to them. So you don't even have to worry about collecting money. You don't have to worry about doing any of that. All you really need to do is focus on the game. Now, weekly games are a way to do it. I know that you can, you know, during your weekly games, say, hey, if you're watching out there and you want to throw some money over at our charity, here's where it is. You know, here's our page to donate. Um, and there's several of them that have that we'll talk about at the end. Um, but what a lot of people like to do, like you said, is to set up a game day and have like a 24 hour game day or a marathon where it is a game day that you are, you know, in between games, you're raising money, you're keeping that message going and you're getting people to donate through that. So what would that look like at an in-person type event? Since we haven't had these in almost a year. <laughs> um, and I really... I think for the most part, people are getting back to being able to have in-person events. I know that our local game store has already put it out that they're getting their spaces ready. Um, they also put out that, hey, for the mean, until we get to a good space, we're going to keep wearing masks. But they're still looking at opening up that uh, the gaming part of the store right. uh, and the event space. So in person, I think there's a couple of different ways you can do it depending on what you want to play, because this, isn't ju this is not just an RPG thing as well. I know for a lot of people that stream online for their game day, um, we have RPGs that, you know, we've all in the last year, we have all gotten used to watching, you know, RPG streams, but there's also like video gamers and stuff that'll do the same thing. Cause they're all part of this geek community that we're bringing together um, in person. You know, it can be an RPG event, or like we talked about, you could do a board game event. I know there's one, uh, I can't, I have to look them up. I should have had this ready, but I don't. Um, there's one place that once a year they do a Catan tournament. 
So you can do that with board games where, where most board games are, you know, some are cooperative that you play together. You can do an actual tournament where you're, you've got people competing at these board games. Uh, the Catan one, like I said, is 24 hours of Catan I was reading about. And people come in and play. And I think that's one of those no elimination types. You just keep playing and keep accumulating points um, for as long as you can. And there's a prize at the end of it and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, there's an option for have multiple picks, pick like six different games. And people do a uh, uh, like an entry fee to get into it. And they accumulate points over the entire day on each game that they play. Um, I, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to do that where you can actually score where people are sitting. Right. I, I think that's a good idea. And as far as to keep the cost low, you could go to like surrounding businesses, locations, things like that, and see if they would be willing to support what you're doing with maybe, you know, gift cards or just small prizes, things like that. Yeah. That way you could give those out to your participants um, in return for the money that you guys are help raising for. Right. Whatever. Right. Um, you can do a 24-hour stream. You can do a 24-hour marathon in person as well. Um, and you and most places now, I think, have set up to stream from the stores or from the event spaces. So you can get both of them. Um, one thing, you know, if you are planning on doing a marathon-type gaming event, remember that 24 hours doing anything is rough. So don't get yourself killed. Make sure you're hydrating. Make sure you're eating. Doing all the things that you do during a normal day, we're just going to dedicate that day to fundraising and gaming and, you know, however you set your event up. So that was the caveat. I wanted to make sure we threw in there. Um, don't overdo it. Make sure you take care of yourselves. But yeah, 24 hours can be done. Um, with an RPG, I know you can stream for 24 hours. You can have multiple games that swap out and in between. Then you can talk about your charity and what you're donating to and stuff like that. Splitting the entrance fees is also another one. You know, there's an entry fee into it. Half of it goes to prizes and half of it goes to donations. Uh, for something like that with like with a tournament or something, you got to have something to offer the people. But I think most people will understand, though, that you're doing it for a charity. Right. So there's that as well. Um, I think those are great ideas just to kind of start with. Um, and I think that kind of gives you the basic building blocks for an event. What's the one that Omegathon? So that's the different kind of game tournament at uh, PAX, every PAX that they run. Um, that is over multiple days, play multiple games, that sort of thing, end up with a champion. You can turn that on its head because that one I don't believe is really for charity. I don't think so. But um, but you could, you could do the same thing with a charity focus um, and then be able to get donations and stuff just by giving people something to watch or that sort of thing. Um, I, I think one of the big things, uh, to make sure about is, uh, however you're going to do it, you need to definitely have a good plan in place beforehand. Right. Um, that way you can run from that. Um, but also, you know, think about what else you could do. You could have food there that you're selling where part of the proceeds go to the charity. I mean, you could have entry fees, of course, where part of those proceeds go to the charity, even, if you are working with a local game store, perhaps if they have, you know, clearance merchandise or something they're trying to move, they could even put some of that stuff up um, for a discounted rate that they're willing to, hey, these proceeds off of this go to oh, charity. Sure. 
So that there's a lot of options there, a lot of ways if you're even a little bit creative um, to kind of garnish some support for these things. I am uh, I, I'm pretty sure it's science that most geeks love cookies. So if you've got that going and, uh, you know, make geek cookies, make them look like Minecraft goobers or, you know, D20s. I've seen the molds for them out there. You know, you got you got some people that can bake and do some stuff like that. It's a great idea to put stuff out there. Uh, I do like bringing in a local store. I can't you know, we can't advocate enough for getting involved locally and seeing, you know, what your store has to put up, what they'll offer up for, you know, set door prizes or for raffles. You can always do raffles for, you know, especially if they have some of the bigger items, you know, some of the statues or the uh, figures or anything. Um, quick word on raffles. Some places they're considered gambling and you have to have a license. So make sure you check with your local authorities so you know what you're getting into. Um, but there are other options. You can do an auction. Um, an auction is usually a great way to kind of drive up prices and collect more money because, again, most people understand that they're doing this for a charity. Right. So oftentimes they will even pay above what they would normally pay just to support this charity. So if you're having an event like this in person, you know, we talked about possibly getting food and things like that. Um, one of the things might even be looking at like a local food truck or something along those lines. If it's, you know, available in in your area, you know, local regulations and all that um, is having one of those come in under the understanding, you know, that maybe even part of those proceeds are able to be donated to. Um, and just really make a whole day out of um, trying to support whatever this cause is you're looking to support. Yep. One of the ideas that um, I saw that I really liked, I love the idea of the cheat jar for people that are watching the game, whether you're streaming or whether you're doing it in person. And basically what a cheat jar is, for those of you that aren't familiar, is the audience can donate to have something happen in game, like give the character an extra role or let them move an extra space or make a character or you make a person redraw an entire hand of their cards, something like that, where you, you know, it's a dollar to give them a role or a dollar to let them move an additional space. Uh, maybe it's $5 to make them redraw an entire hand. And you get to do that and get to participate as part of the audience. I think for most gamers, they'll understand that this is a fun one-off event and it should be fine. I know there are some power gamers that I've heard like, that's, I never want to play a game like that. And I was like, Hey, it's not about you. You know, we're raising money for other people. So for stuff like that, I think it's a great idea, but I think you got to be upfront about it too, that when people come to sit and play, they understand that the game may be manipulated by outside sources, i.e. the audience. And if you brought your friends, you know, your friends, you know what I'm saying? Right. I, I think that sits really well with uh, an RPG type themed, um, in fact, I think we one of the places we were talking about that we saw it done uh, was a game that was run by Chris Perkins with a bunch of other big names um, that they had that audience mm -hmm. interacting in that way. Um, and everything, of course, was um, automated and digital. So when somebody would make the donation for whatever, somebody would come and give Chris a piece of paper and, <laughs> and it would tell him exactly what he needed to do. Uh, those kind of things, they're fun. They're exciting. They really change the flow of a game. Um, and it makes it I, I, if you're used to watching RPGs or if that's something that you enjoy doing, you know, you're used to being a passive participant to this story that's happening. Uh, but it gives you the opportunity to really affect the story and make it make it kind of different and crazy and unique. I can tell you, I don't know how many people that I know that do watch streams like Critical Role, Dimension 20, stuff like that. Even when we're watching uh 
you know, acquisitions incorporated or something. When something happens on stage and you're like, I want this to go another route. You, it's just like watching football, you know, when they yell at, they can't hear you, but you're still involved. Here's a way to actually get involved. You know, throw a couple bucks at it. And I think that's a great idea. So if we were setting up an event right now, I think we would set up the goblin game. Right. So we play in a um, weekly D&D game um, that our one of our players has just recently started streaming it on our Twitch channel. Uh, throughout this group, we've been together almost two years. Yes. Pretty, pretty close to that now. Um, over a couple, couple different iterations at this point. Um, but during one of our kind of transition phases, we decided to start a game and we just called it the Goblin Game. Uh, in this game, of course, every player character had to be a goblin, um, and most of their names all had to rhyme with goblin. Uh, it's great. It's fun. It's one of those games that we can play whenever we have kind of like an off week or something like that. But there was always a special character that we came uh, up with in this game. Well, it, this originally started with an NPC in our game, um, which I know the name has been copyrighted or something now, but we just called him Boblin, and he was a apprentice he started out like fetching coffee in like the first game or something like something really minor and by you know three months into it boblin is leading like a special forces assault team to rescue an npc that we're like oh we need him back and like oh we'll have boblin do it because that was the thing it was always like oh we'll just have boblin do it so boblin was where it started and we were like hey let's just make a game off of boblin because we need boblin's team so everybody had to make a character. Their name had to ride with Goblin. And that morphed into... Yeah, the Eastside Goblins. <laughs> the Eastside Goblin Society, where all the goblins get together in like a social setting at this bar. And everybody was a goblin, and all of their names rhymed with Goblin. So we had... Loblin, Cloblin. The Barbarian. Uh, yep. Um, Jocelyn... Joblin. Yeah, Joblin. He was a French goblin. Uh, yeah, yeah. the list just continued to go on and on. Um, and then we got to Jeff. <laughs> and we have Jeff. Uh. So the the scene is set with a, a room, you know, this tavern full of all these goblin characters and various outfits and attire from the entire city of Ravnica. All the different guilds represented and, you know, what goes along with that. And then right in the middle of them is a huge fur bog sitting at one of the tables. Um, and of course, you know, as one would suspect um, to fit in, this fur bog has um, makeshift goblin ears that he is wearing um, so that he can fit in with the rest of the East side goblins. And everybody just accepted Jeff and it was fine and it was normal. And it was fantastic when we came up with the idea and we've talked about doing this as a game at a con somewhere or as a charity event where over 24 hours run six different sessions where people can, people could buy into the session, put their name down, right? Where you come in, you put your name for the time you're going to be there, you know, pay your fee and stuff. And then when it comes around during the day, you have everybody show up for the different sessions. Um, but our sessions are six people and everyone rolls a D6. And whoever rolls the highest would play Jeff. And then we would have 20 other pre-made characters that you would roll a D20. And that's the character you got to play for your session. Um, I think that would be, I think it would be a blast, first of all. Um, because the goblins are just given jobs that are, 
usually completely outside of their understanding or you know ability but that's what makes it fun is now go figure it out right exactly and the the way the setting ended up kind of playing out is you know these goblins tended to be involved in you know clandestine activities that they probably had no business being involved in you know somebody somewhere a lot higher up in the hierarchy needed something done and somehow it fell to this ragtag group of goblins um so something like that um where we could you know switch players in and out you know run just four hour sessions you know switch up the dm so nobody has to be you know trying to dm for 24 hours straight or anything like that um and then really just have fun with it yeah uh because that's kind of what i picture you know a, a lot of these charity streams you see they are pretty much that it's the people getting together usually with some kind of one shot type games and then having fun um, with that material because they know at the end of the day what they're doing it for is for a good cause right. that's one big thing to remember is you are doing it for something bigger and it's supposed to be fun so we found a couple of charities um, i don't think anybody will be too surprised but some that we looked at that have been accepted um, with the gaming community um, and i'll start off with extra life and i think extra life is probably one of the more prominent ones that you see i can't remember the last time i went into a shop or something and didn't see an extra life tag they were started in 2008, and Extra Life is a charity that was specifically created to unite gamers. And at the time, I think they really focused on like video gamers, video streamers. But but over the years, they have brought thousands of gamers together across all different types of games. Right. I, I remember when they first kind of started uh, seeing them. That was kind of around the same time when like streaming became kind of a large thing and seeing these um, video game players promoting this charity uh, since then they've kind of really grown from that and kind of crossed the gap over into kind of tabletop games as well uh, a lot of one of the best things about it, the proceeds go to the Ch children's miracle network hospitals um, and you can actually sign up. You can sign up as a team. You can join a guild. There's a bunch of different ways you can actually get involved with this charity. And you can choose your hospital. So you can pick one that's closest to your community. Um, or, or if you're from somewhere else and you're trying to raise money, um, and you want to raise money for a specific hospital somewhere that maybe you've had a family member or a friend that's been treated at, you can do that as well. And that's one of the big things is they encourage you to, raise money based on what's important to you and they have an extensive network that you can get involved in once you sign up so you sign up as yourself or with a team the guilds are actually active in the community trying to sign up people or trying to get people to start their own page or their own uh, join a team or something like that so um, they've raised over 70 million dollars since they've started um, you can find them at extratacklife.org so the next one that we want to talk about is Red Nose Day. Uh, one of the reasons we bring this up is because actually Red Nose Day is coming up here shortly. As of the time of recording, um, we're looking just a couple weeks out. Um, and then it'll be Red Nose Day on May 27th of this year. So this was one started in 2015. And they've talked about they've raised over $240 million. And their focus is fighting childhood poverty. It's amazing that we are still dealing with this red nose day focuses on that. And I'm sure you've seen people that are involved in red nose day because of the red nose. Like that has been their kind of signature since this began in 2019, Matt Mercer 
did a one-off stream or yeah, one-on-one stream with Stephen Colbert from the Colbert Report from the Daily Show to raise funds for Red Nose Day. I remember watching that um, after they put it up on stream, and it's amazing to see like these people who you probably wouldn't expect. Um, talk about how he used to like play games and used to be a gamer and stuff like that. So again, we have an amazing group in this hobby and just kind of reaching out to those people and, you know, doing those sorts of things. It's wonderful to be able just to give back. You can find the information for Red Nose Day at rednoseday.org. So the last one we're going to talk about is World Builders. Um, This is one that is championed by Patrick Rothfuss who's the author of The Name of the Wind, The King Killer Chronicles. He's a regular at PAX and, you know, for the conventions and the streams, where he plays with Acquisitions Incorporated on stage. Um, we've seen him do other stuff on stage, board games. Call to Adventure was one that we watched him play, where they actually had an event, a charity event like the Cheat Jars, where people were donating to the event as he was live playing, uh, and all those proceeds went to World Builders. I like this charity specifically, uh, because of the way they seek to um, benefit the communities they're trying to impact. Uh, so they have a sustainable self-sufficiency program that they look to implement in the places where they are involved in. Uh, basically, what that means is instead of taking you know food and supplies and just giving them to people, they will instead teach these people how to grow plants, how to raise animals. Um, instead of just giving them, you know, chickens to eat, they will give them chickens and show them how to, you know, help the chickens have eggs and then how to let the eggs hatch and then raise more chickens so that they're able to continue this process more so than just getting an immediate meal. One of the things that, um, they like to champion is all the things that you can get from goats because you can have first off the goat, you can have the baby goats, you can have the goat milk, like all of this stuff. They can end up if they have the sheep, they can end up selling the wool off of it. All of these things to help these communities through not only just giving them things to help them initially, but by educating them on how they can sustain themselves through using these different you know gifts that they're given. Right. And World Builders is a kind of umbrella organization. Whatever funds they get, they decide what groups they're going to give to and who they're going to sponsor. Their flagship is uh, Heifer International, which does provide like long term solutions, um, giving people a hand and helping pull themselves out of poverty, like I said, by giving them a sustained income and not just a handout. Um, the Mercy Corps is another group that they give to, which focuses on more immediate issues, especially when we're talking about refugees from war and natural disaster. But they bring more than just the basic needs. They make sure to try to make it feel normal and safe for people that have survived. So that's kind of how World Builders works. Um, but it is another organization that is specifically designed to draw the geek community in. Geeks Do Good is the June kind of drive that they have. If you go to their website, worldbuilders.org you can see what's coming up and how you can get involved and help them i like i said i think it's a great group it's not just you know a simple handout but it is something to make poverty become non-existent so there you go if you have enjoyed being part of this community and you want to do something to give back there are some great options for you come up with something 
be creative, find people that are creative and be able to give something back to people that are less fortunate than us, because that is the true mark of a great community. All right. So given this past year, there have been a lot of opportunities um, to play some games solo. One of the shifts in the board game market, I think, in the past over the past few years has really been um, some exciting and new and interesting solo games that you can play. Since the lockdowns, as we've all been separated, uh, just having an afternoon to yourself where you can play for a lot of people is um, something that they'd be interested in. And you can only play so many rounds of solitaire before that gets boring. So like you said, the game industry has given us some new ideas. So um, let's look at a couple that we liked that we want to talk about. So and to kind of preface these couple of games, um, most of these are not strictly solo games, um, but they have solo variants or solo modes in them, uh, which creates you know a wonderful game that you can play not only with others, but also you can still enjoy that same game or similar experience. Uh, just by yourself. So the first one is my one of my all-time favorite games, possibly even my number one, um, and that is Spirit Island. Uh, Spirit Island is a game where you have you choose one of the spirits. Which right now, with the new expansions, I believe there's close to fifteen or sixteen of them, all included. Every spirit plays completely different. They come with their own starter deck of cards. They have different abilities and different attributes that make each playthrough with a different spirit completely different. And the spirits are like nature spirits of the island that is the playboard. Exactly. So you are trying to protect your island from these invaders who are coming to colonize the island. Uh, you working with the native people who are called the Dahan uh, to push back the invaders um, and eventually get a victory through basically scaring them off the island. Uh, this game is uh, one to five players with the new Jagged Earth expansion, and it plays great across all player counts that I've ever played. Um, I especially enjoy this game as solo because uh, you can play one of two ways. You can play a single spirit um, as by yourself, or you can play two handed. Now, Two-handed is difficult because this game can be kind of brain-burning if you're not careful. Um, but you could play two different spirits and watch how they interact. Right. We've seen we've played it uh, with up to four people before. Right. And it's definitely one of those games where you got to do some thinking, um, play a few steps ahead. Um, I really like that about it. Um, playing it by yourself, I can imagine um, having two spirits. You kind of get a chance to cover. You know, some of them. Some of the spirits have powers that are immediate and they happen quickly in the round some of them you kind of wait to the end of the round before their power goes off so you can mix and match that and play different combinations so you can see what works right and there are a couple of really interesting spirit combos where they two different spirits will really play off of each other um, strengthens weaknesses they will make sure kind of cover those for each other uh, it, it becomes really exciting when you're able to kind of discover those combos but at the same time, playing solo-handed, just a single spirit, is an excellent way to play as well. Um, one thing about this, they did recently release their app. 
um, that they are actually releasing the expansions coming out soon for it. Um, so if you don't have a physical copy of the board game, that's definitely something to look into because you can get it on your mobile devices. Uh, the next one to kind of consider is actually a two-parter. Uh, this is Marvel Champions LCG or Arkham Horror LCG. Uh, the reason why I grouped these two together is they are very much a similar game. They are both made by Fantasy Flight in their living card game series. Uh, there's a couple others that are kind of also in the same kind of vein. I haven't played any of those. These are the two that I have experience with. My favorite right now is Marvel Champions. Uh, it is an excellent game. You get to choose one of the Marvel superheroes and you play as that superhero. Every superhero has their own 15 card cards that are completely unique to them. Um, then you create the rest of the 40 card deck using one of the four aspects included in the game. Then you go and you fight a villain. Right now, I believe there are are about 11 or 12 villains, um, possibly even a few more now, uh, that you're able to fight with. This game already has two full campaign sets out that you can play. Um, so if you're somebody like me who enjoys having all of the things, right now it's a pretty steep buy-in. But just to play the game, you can get a the base box, which comes with five different heroes and three villains. So that gives you a lot of replayability right out of the base game. Um, Arkham Horror is a very similar vein. Um, you choose your investigator, you create your deck. The investigators all have different abilities and things like that. Now, Arkham Horror has been out for a lot longer than Marvel Champions. So the complete buy-in on that, a lot of the stuff you can't even get anymore right. um, because it's out of print. But both of these games um, can be a quick setup and teardown. So I actually take um, a small deck box that I have with Marvel Champion stuff in it when I go to my day job. And during lunch breaks, I'm able to break it out and play around and also eat my lunch all during that hour break that I have. So it's very quick set up, tear down, you know, get a game in here and there. Um, and then if you want to have kind of a bigger setup, you can, of course, there are all sorts of people out there making special tokens and counters and all sorts of things like that for them. Uh, but this is a definite great solo game. It's also good with other players as well. And you can play this one one-handed or two-handed. Um, the only complaint that I heard is that sometimes playing single-handed with these games can be a little swingy um, because they're kind of designed and balanced for that multiplayer aspect. Right. Um, but you can play two-handed, and it's not as brain-burning as like um, Spirit Island would be. Is there anywhere to find those ones digitally yet? Uh not outside of something like board game arena or tabletop simulator. Okay. Um, they don't have specific apps for them yet. Um, but like I said, with being card games, they're able to take up a lot less space than like a full board game. Sure. Um, so it makes them a little more accessible when space is an issue. Got it. Um, and lastly, we have the smallest games on this list. Um, and I put two of them kind of together here. Um, and those are Palm Island and the Tiny Epic Games series. Um, so those of you who don't know what Palm Island is, um, it is a small card game that you play entirely within your hand. Uh, that doesn't require a table or anything like that. This makes this an excellent game uh, to be able to play when you're standing in line, maybe at a convention, you know, <laughs> waiting for an Acquisitions Incorporated show. Just saying. That sounds very specific. Right. Um, 
but it allows you to play this entire kind of resource generating game um, where at the end of it, you you end up counting all the points that you have from the buildings you've built. Um, you have it's a small deck of cards, I believe it's 24, 25 cards that you hold in your hand and you shuffle through the cards. And depending on the orientation of the card, as you move it to the back determines what it's going to come up the next time. So some cards will generate resources and you'll turn those cards to the side so you can always see them in your hand. And then you use those resources to build or upgrade different buildings and things along those lines. Um, it's a very quick, very fun game. It doesn't take very long to play. It's easy to reset. Um, and like I said, it doesn't require a table or anything like that um, in order to play. Uh, then lastly, we have the Tiny Epic Game series. Yes. Um, I think I have, uh, I've got a couple of them here. I've got one of them here. I know I have Tiny Epic Mechs. Um, right. But there are so many out there right now. They have several of these. The Tiny Epic Games are by Gameland Games. Um, I believe, <laughs> I want to say there's like 10 or 11 now. Because uh, I remember when we, in 2019, when we went to PAX Unplugged, uh, we went by their booth and you could buy every single Tiny Epic game they had in this fancy little carrying case. Uh, it was pretty much a backpack. Right. Uh, but they would, they had this deal going on at, at the convention. Um, there are so many different categories. There's tiny epic mechs, there's zombies, there's galaxies, there's Western, there's kingdoms, there's uh, tiny epic quest, like all of these different things um, that all are, play a little bit differently and cater a little bit differently to different genres of gaming. Uh, some of them are better than others. Um, you can find reviews online and decide which one you might want to try out. Uh, the best part is they're like 25 bucks is the buy in on them. And they're tiny. Like the box literally is probably like what a four by six, something, something like that. It's, yeah. yeah, it's tiny. You and you can set them up. Um, they take up some of them take up more table space than others, um, but a lot of them you're able to kind of work with a smaller space. Um, and I did see they did come out with even tinier epic things. So I know I saw even tinier epic galaxies. Yeah. So it's an even smaller package and smaller box in the whole nine yards. But again, most of their games can be played solo. Just double check and make sure the one you're looking at can. Um, but a lot of them are that kind of um, kind of quick, they, but they still give you that rewarding experience um, when you really have to kill some time. It's definitely a lot packed into a small box. So if you were spending some time alone and looking for something to keep you occupied, let us know if you find one that you like. Welcome back to Know Your Character. So this was a segment that we started in the last show where... We bring a character that we have played or someone has sent to us and we talk about what they are, where they would fit in, what their abilities are, and give you an option to have them as an NPC or maybe even an inspiration for one of your own characters. So what character do we have set up for today? All right. Today we're going to be talking about one of my favorite characters that I've played. Um, his name is Finnegan Short Stout, um, but his friends call him Finn. Uh, he is a bard, uh, comes in from D&D 5e. Uh, of course, he is in the setting Faerun. He is a Lightfoot Halfling, um, and his bard college is the College of Swords. 
Uh, just to go through his stats real quick, um, his strength is 8, dex 16, con is 13, intelligence is 10, wisdom is 12, and charisma is 20. The background that he was built off of is the urchin background, um, and his saves being a bard are dexterity and charisma. And lastly, his proficiencies that he has are sleight of hand, stealth, thieves tools, investigation, perception, deception, disguise kit, and drums. So immediately when I where we are right now, I see this halfling who could probably sneak away or like very halfling rogue kind of build right up until drums. Exactly. So the the inspiration for this character came from the group that I was playing in. Uh, we were starting a new campaign and we decided we wanted to make a band. Um, that was going to be the kind of the entire focus of the campaign. Um, so uh, my bandmates, um, myself, Finn, um, on the drums, there was another bard in the party. Uh, she was a tabaxi who played a liar, if I remember correctly. Uh, then we had a Goliath um, who used a homebrew class um, where he was like a um, luchador. Right. Basically, uh, the pugilist was the class. Um, but all he played was the maracas. So together, me and him made the percussion section of the entire band. Um, and then lastly, we had a Kinku who was our singer. So as you can imagine, we were the best cover band, band ever. ever. Um, that, so that being said, uh, that was kind of the premise for the entire party. Um, so building Finn out here, um, he was the drummer. Um, being College of Swords bard, he dual wielded. Uh, two weapons, um, you know, kind of going with that theme of needing to have dexterity in both hands um, for his background. Um, so Finn is just under three feet tall. Um, so he's kind of short just in general, but also for a halfling. Um, he's often found just wearing a breastplate for armor and completely sleeveless shirts. Uh, he doesn't like sleeves. It's the whole drummer thing, um, as well as a completely shaved head. Um He's kind of unusual looking for a halfling. Um, and a lot of times people don't expect um, kind of what comes from him. But definitely uh, he's a sight that would stick out. Uh, so Finn, he grew up uh, from a small family in the countryside outside of Waterdeep. His family was actually known for brewing their own brand of ale. Um, he was extremely short and oftentimes forgotten about with the other family members as they went about you know, usual activities. Uh, so one day while he was trying to avoid the usual chores of, you know, trying with his family, they try to make him to do, um, he accidentally bumped into one of the large brewing vats and he noticed the metallic ring that it made. Um, from then on, he went around kind of tapping the other vats and seeing the pitch that they made as he would tap on them. Um, and this kind of gave him his love of that kind of percussion instrument. Uh, as he continued to grow up, uh, he decided that he did not want to be part of the family business. He wanted to go his own way. Um, and his father, of course, was not something that he liked. Uh, he wanted him to continue, you know, the family name and the family business. Uh, on a trip to Waterdeep, um, Finn, he ran away into the city and away from his family. 
Um, he began to kind of learn the harsh reality of living on the street as, you know, a, a young person. Um, and he finally found a new family in his band. Uh, if you guys know the story of um, Waterdeep Dragon Heist, uh, you know, your party has the option to eventually come into possession of an inn, um, which is what they did. Uh, we ended up naming our inn the Blue Footed Booby um, because we had a bird lead singer. So, you know, it just seemed to fit. Um, so that's feel free to uh, find the band, you know, playing at your local Waterdeep establishment. You know, make sure to put those in your your group. Um, so some of his play style kind of character motivations, um, Finn is a quick talker, um, hence the high score in deception. Uh, he's willing to kind of talk his way out of any situation. Um, and most of the time being with a lot of untruth. Uh, if things do ever develop poorly because of that, um, he does carry two falchions that he uses quite often when needed. Um, most of the time he is pretty fun loving and enjoys adventures that he and his band has gotten into. Um, he does have some powerful connections, um, being a member of the Harpers, um, as well as some favors that are owed to him from some pretty high ranking officials in Waterdeep. Um, if you want to kind of slot him into your game as an NPC in Waterdeep, um, he can be a trusty ally or even a cunning nemesis. I like the starving artist running away from family responsibilities take on it. Um, so depending on when you encounter him, whether it's before the band actually buys their own tavern where they're playing consistently or after that could be a completely different character. He was a blast to play because not only was he pretty like proficient in combat, the College of Swords bards are pretty, pretty strong, mm -hmm. um, but also out of combat. It was fun to be able because if you notice, he's not proficient in persuasion. <laughs> it's only deception. I saw that. <laughs> so it was fun to kind of play to his strengths as you were in these social encounters uh, where you would he would have to lie in order to kind of get that that bonus to whatever he was doing. So he was a better liar than he was at, you know, telling the truth, I guess. Um, but that being said, um, even coming up and using things like the disguise kit um, and things like that. I know one of my favorite stories is we were um, in the down below water deep um, and we had come upon um, some drow that were down there and they had captured us. And we were going to attempt to talk our way out of the situation. They were basically trying to see what we were doing down there. They thought we were spies or something like that. And we were trying to tell them that we were just a band. <laughs> well, they took away all of our stuff, so we didn't have anything there. So I convinced my DM to let me like pick up a couple rocks on the way over to where they were um, taking us to. And he, so he agreed, not knowing what I was planning. <laughs> so we sit down and... I start, I tell him, like, my character is going to start playing a little rhythm on his breastplate with these rocks. And he was like, okay, well, what are you playing? Um, and he, and I said, he's going to start the intro to um, the Phil Collins song um, in the air tonight. And he was do, like, do, 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 yeah. Do. So, of course, I, I pull up the whole video on YouTube and it's they like playing the song. And then right as it gets to the big, like, drum, drum part that really kicks off the whole song. I was like, and that's exactly what I want to do right there. And then look over at the rest of my bandmates and see if they pick it up. 
so I did the performance check. Of course, it was like, I think I rolled an 18 or 19 on it. It was on the ridiculously high. And as soon as that went off, my Kinku bandmate, he's like, all right, I'll pick it up right there <laughs> and start singing the rest of the song. So, uh, you know, stuff like that. It was really fun. Um, kind of that interaction between the different players trying to be this band. Yeah. So. If you've got a band where you need somebody for percussion or you've got a party that needs to find somebody in the bar, they could be entertained. So what was the name of the band? The band name was Freebird, given that we had a Kinku lead singer. Um, and it was funny because he was a warlock um, and his great old one patron had given him a special artifact to allow him also to speak normally. Because that's the thing with Kinku. Most of them can only mimic um, so we thought Freebird was pretty accurate, uh, especially given that we were a cover band. <laughs> That's perfect. So there you go. Finnegan Short Stout. If you need somebody to entertain your party or they just happen to wander into the blue footed booby, this halfling may be something you can slip into your game. So just like we do every week, we're going to finish up our show with our Kickstarter roundup. All right, this week, we have a couple of projects revolving around tabletop accessories. Uh, one of the big ones that we want to talk about this week is the project out by Wormwood uh, and Dispel, which is their dice sets. Right. If you've been playing for any amount of time, I'm sure you've seen Wormwood. A lot of the stuff they make is high quality dice boxes, vaults character lockers and even all the way up to tables right they made the table that critical role uses their name is synonymous with high quality gaming accessories so looking at this kickstarter that came in um so they are actually already on wave four of the kickstarter that's how fast a lot of it has been selling um they have partnered with the company called dispel to offer some new dice sets uh they have everything from um, sharp end resin dice uh, to gemstone and even glass. Yeah, I see looking through this, the raised obsidian um, is back on there, um, which is one of my personal favorite. I just, I love the way that it looks. The numbers are black on black dice. Um, we did, we saw these actually at PAX and they're about a hundred bucks for a set of seven. Um, and I just didn't get them. Um, it'll be my present to myself when convention season starts again, because I feel like I need to roll the dice before I spend that much on a set. And it's my own personal issue because I know these guys make quality stuff, but until I do, it's going to be a mess, but I definitely saw those on there. They look great. The gemstone dice look great. I really like the new, uh, the night bloom, which is a, uh, one of the sharp edge resin dice. Um, it's, it looks like a clear dice with like a red bloom in the center. Um, you have to go look at these just, I mean, they're gorgeous. Uh, I don't think there's any of them in here that you can't say that about. Uh, one of the things to take note of their pricing is, I mean, you're going to pay a good bit for these sets, but at the end of the day, you know, you're getting a high quality item. Sure. Um, this is not just, um, no offense to Chessex, but this is just not another Chessex set of dice. This is something that is handcrafted that looks exceptional, especially if you go with one of the gemstone or the glass sets. They are all absolutely gorgeous. The only thing to keep in mind, 
do not just roll these on any table. If you're going to spend this much money on a dice set, invest in a nice, you know, dice box to roll them in that's felt lined and that they're not going to get damaged in. Right. Now, speaking of dice boxes. (laughs) On to the next one. Uh, We have a Kickstarter called RPG Smart Box. Uh, We've actually covered a couple of similar sets like this in the past few episodes. There's one thing that stuck out to me about this set. Um, So if you look at this Kickstarter, it is a complete box. It has everything from um, a dice box in it, a a character vault that you can also keep um, like your your dice in it. You can also keep pins in it. It has even a custom journal for your character that they will make for you. And then probably the best thing of all is is coasters yes so these um the box is beautiful and if you wanted a full set it's excellent go for that because it's all handcrafted and custom engraved like everything looks beautiful but these coasters are one of the things that drew me into this kickstarter um so each of these coasters has a l-shaped cutout in one of the corners of them in addition to being like engraved with kind of this dragon motif that goes throughout the whole box um in this l-shaped part of the coaster it is made there so that you can set your dice in that little cavity so that they are not scattered all over the table i really like it and like i said and i saw the video i was like why haven't we thought about this before uh and the coasters look like they're like three layers uh, two wooden layers around. It looks like a metal center. They look really well done. Right. And you can actually get a set of five of them for $32, which is not terrible for something like this. If you've ever played in a tight setting, like at a small table, you know how easy it is for things to get cluttered. As well as if it's a nice table, you don't want drinks on the table. You know, you don't have to worry about condensation getting onto people's character sheets and things like that. You know, you throw it on a coaster. Well, these function in a double way of also being a place where you can hold the dice that you're not using. Uh, it makes keeps everything nice and clean and not cluttered um, so that you have, you know, this kind of straight up good looking table where things aren't scattered all over the place. So for those of us with like OCD and stuff, I mean, that could be huge. The smart box, like you said, comes with this uh, dragon motif that's engraved into the box and into all of the the coasters and the dice vault. Um, Or if you're willing to pay uh, $259 for the pledge, you can have your own design engraved on the different pieces. Right. So... That is one that definitely take a look at. Like I said, even if it's just for the coasters, that might be just your way to go. Um, If you want the full box, you can also, of course, pledge at that level as well. They've got 24 days left on it. Uh, They've got $13,000 pledged out of $10,000, so it is funded. And they're working their way. They're about $1,000 off from hitting their first stretch goal. All right, lastly, we have another 5E setting. Um, These are very common. I enjoy these. So this was designed by Chris Metzen, who was vice president of design? Yep, I believe senior vice president of story and franchise development at Blizzard. So, I mean, somebody that knows gaming, understands the story, and has designed his own setting. Um, Ouroboros is the name of the setting, the coils of the serpent. So one of the things that stuck out to me about this setting, um, it has a 
outside of the new races, new kind of class combinations, things like that, it has a, a game mechanic in here called the Mark of the Serpent, uh, in which you as a character are able to kind of leverage this extraordinary power in return for giving up um, some sort of like debilitating weakness. So it, with this great power that you get as you every time that you use it, you work your way around these coils of the serpent until eventually that power consumes you, uh, which I, has always been an interesting um, thought for me. Going back to uh, the Dragonlance series yeah. um, was one I was always a fan of reading um, and kind of the way that magic takes a toll on the user in those in that series has always been something that I found fascinating and I wish was kind of fleshed out more yep. um, in kind of like modern magic settings. Um, you see that in the Wheel of Time series as well. Right. And so something like this is I, I enjoy this kind of um, game mechanic where, yes, you have access to this power and it's it's an awesome power and like you want to use it. But there is always a cost to magic. Right. Um, so something like that, I think is, could definitely be interesting. Um, I think the big thing about this is the, the names behind it. Um, especially with Chris Metzen being the one who's heading it up. We're talking, he was involved in Warcraft, you know, Starcraft, Diablo, Overwatch, those games that have these huge stories and story moments. So, you know, this guy knows how to tell a story. And I think that that really plays into kind of what we can hope and expect to come out of this. Just looking through it, I love the new uh, races that are in there. I, the new subclasses look like they are a lot of fun. Um, and then, like I said, I believe this is already funded. So we're pushing into, yeah. Yeah, they were asking for a pledge of 50000 and they're pushing over a million right now. So we're opening up all sorts of stretch goals. Um, some of them are the STL files for the different minis. Um, which I think is great, especially when you introduce new races. It is so hard to find a good mini. Um, so those are fantastic. Uh, you can get the the book in PDF. So it looks like it's ready for um, on your computers or on your mobile devices, um, as well as getting the, um, the hardback covers. Uh, they even have like the enamel pins are in part of it. Um, the coins dice a lot of extras that can come along with it if you're willing to pledge um some of the some of the higher tiers right so this one as of time of recording only has five days left so it's a pretty pretty quick one normally we like to give a little extra time for it that being said uh, it's a 25 dollars buy-in um for the pdf versions of both the source book and the player guide uh, which is a minimal buy-in like especially if you don't mind having digital versions of the books um, for an actual hard copy of the source book, you're looking at $50, but at that pledge level, you also get the PDF versions as well, um, which are excellent if you're on the go and don't have the book with you. Um, some of the interesting add-ons that I like, um, if you go with the hardcover book, you're able for just 10 more dollars to get a soft cover version of the player's guide um, so that you would have like a version to actually be able to give your players outside of the digital one. Um, lastly, there are some excellent upgrades that you can get for this game that all kind of theme with it. Um, and funny enough, they come from Wormwood. Um, so there are dice vaults. Um, looks like there is a dice tray with some beautiful artwork on it. Um, all these things that you can add on on the other end of the pledge. Awesome. So like we said, five days left, but I'm sure 
you probably able to get your hands on it once they uh, meet their goal. Uh, this looks like one that's going to be around for a little while. Uh, like I said, they're the, so far they have over a million dollars pledged to it. Uh, so, which still hasn't opened the final stretch goal. One point five million is their final stretch goal, which uh, is the next Ouroboros project. All right, and pulling that final block has brought the entire tower down, and we are done for today. For the Dapper Meeple, I've been one of your hosts, Josh. And I'm Jim. Until next time. Thanks, everyone, for sticking around and listening to our show. If you enjoyed it, let me ask you a favor. Follow us and leave us a like wherever you get your podcast. It really helps us out. And if you have anything to say back to us, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for The Dapper Meeple. On Twitter, our handle is at the Dapper Meeple, or email us at dappermeeplegaming at gmail.com. And as always, we'll save you a seat at the table. <laughs>